Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hello, friends and neighbors. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod and the second installment of our special report, Our Democracy in Peril, where we assess the impact of the insurrection of January 6th efforts to hold Donald Trump responsible, and how we protect our democracy moving forward. So last week, we followed the timetable of events leading up to January 6th and the roles played by Donald Trump himself and his top lieutenants, especially White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. This week, we're going to focus on the consequences of their actions, or what should be the consequences of their actions, not just for those who actually stormed the Capitol on January 6th, but for those who inspired and incited the violence. Our guest is Barbara McQuaid. You see her often as a legal analyst on MSNBC. In addition to her work on MSNBC, Barbara is a former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan and now professor of law at the University of Michigan Law School. To prevent a repeat of January 6th, Barbara McQuaid believes there must be strong action both by the House Select Committee and by the Justice Department. Barbara McQuaid, good to say hello to you, and thanks so much for joining us. Welcome to the Bill Press Pod. Oh, thanks very much, Bill. My honor to be here with you. Thanks so much. Let me ask you first. Of course, Trump uh, still refuses to accept the outcome of the last election, still says it was stolen, and yet he is now the former president. So should we just accept what he's saying and move on? I think there is some temptation to do that, but I, I think the answer is no, because I worry that if you don't hold accountable people who are responsible for the January 6th insurrection and also the efforts that Donald Trump has undertaken to undermine public confidence in our elections, then I think you risk the possibility that someone will just do it again and maybe this time do it better. You have written uh, in the Washington Post together with Lawrence Tribe and, and Joyce Vance that the Department of Justice should conduct an investigation of Donald Trump's role. Uh, are you talking about a criminal investigation? And if so, based on what evidence? Yeah, I think there is already sufficient what's called predication to begin a criminal investigation. Predication just means I have some facts to suggest that there is a crime that may have been committed here, as opposed to just a wild fishing expedition. You know, I I don't like Bill Press, so I'm just going to start investigating him to see if he's committed any crimes. That that would be improper. But if there is some basis to suggest that a crime has been committed, then it's absolutely proper. And in some instances, in a case like this with such grave importance, uh, there is a need to conduct an investigation. So I, I think an investigation should already have begun. Maybe it has, and the Justice Department is just doing what it normally does, which is keep investigations quiet. I don't know if you immediately name Donald Trump as a target. But certainly, I think you want to investigate all people who are involved 
in that insurrection. That, that investigation is, of course, ongoing. We know that the people who are at the Capitol that day have been charged with crimes. And as the U.S. attorney in the District of Columbia promised at that initial press conference to take that investigation as high as it goes so that we can determine, was, was there somebody at the top who was coordinating all of these efforts? Or was this really just uh, some public statements and some people got a little bit rowdy and out of hand? I think from all the, the coordinated lawsuits we've seen, I think the letter that Jeffrey Clark, the acting attorney general for the civil division, wrote after meeting with Donald Trump, uh, he had prepared that for acting attorney general Jeffrey Rosen's signature, reaching out to Georgia and sharing with Georgia a roadmap of how it could invalidate the its election and instead throw the election to its legislature. And there's Mm -hmm. reporting that he prepared that letter for six states. And that strikes me as perhaps the stuff of a conspiracy. I think that there needs to be an investigation to satisfy us that uh, whether there was or wasn't some kind of criminal activity. And for Donald Trump himself, what evidence would you say exists that at least merits a criminal investigation? What did he do that you, you would add up as one or two or three things I think this effort to sort of just say we won, uh, we know that on election night, he came out and said, we won. He's gone, uh, his lawyers have gone into court to say we won. The phone call with uh, the Raffensperger. state of Georgia, yeah, mm-hmm. and um, uh, saying you need to find me 11,000 some votes. His public statements at the ellipse on the day of the insurrection. You know, I think those words alone are not going to be enough. But I think if you combine all of these factors, as well as his urging to Jeffrey Clark uh, to find some way, the pressure he put on uh, Jeffrey Rosen at the Department of Justice, the pressure that he applied to all of those DOJ officials, I think is also some evidence of criminal wrongdoing by Donald Trump himself. So what about the policy, the Department of Justice policy, which we saw played out in uh, in the Mueller investigation, the conclusion of it, final report, that you cannot indict a president of the United States. Yeah, well, that only went as so far as you can't indict a sitting president of the United States. And if you read the Office of Legal Counsel opinion uh, that gives us that policy, you'll see that the reasons for it is it would be an undue distraction for the president mm-hmm. to be indicted. It would make it difficult for him to govern. It would be challenging for him to interact with the heads of other governments. And so uh, those things that apply to a sitting president, though, don't apply to someone once they're out of office. And so I don't think it applies, even if his conduct occurred while he was president. Certainly, you can't charge him with a crime for his policy choices, even if you disagree with them. Uh, But this would be violation of actual statutes. It's sort of a tangent, but I remember well, because I was covering the White House every day uh, when President Obama took office, and there were a lot of, there's a lot of pressure on him, a lot of calls, particularly from member, Democratic members of Congress, to indict, uh, have the Justice Department investigate and indict George Bush and Dick Cheney for war crimes, particularly because of the torture. Yeah. Uh, uh, and uh, Obama chose not to do so. Uh, what's the difference here? Or is there a difference? Yes, there. You know, I, of course, I haven't seen the evidence that they had against President Bush and Vice President Cheney. I don't know whether it was strong evidence, but there are two questions that prosecutors have to ask themselves. One is, can we charge a crime here? Is there sufficient evidence 
uh, that a crime was been, has been committed? Can we prove each of these elements at a trial? The second and harder and more important question is, should we charge this crime? Mm-hmm. Uh, not every, That's how prosecutors use their discretion every day. Not every violation of the law merits federal charges. The question is whether there's a substantial federal interest. And I think there are a lot of things that someone would have to weigh in thinking about that. Uh, the risk uh, and probably the calculation that was done by Attorney General Holder during the Obama administration is, is this worth it? Or does it set a precedent that we will become a country where every new president indicts his predecessor? And I don't think we want that to happen. And so I think it needs to be reserved for truly extraordinary conduct. What President Bush did and what Vice President Cheney did may have been out of bounds. It may even have violated war crimes. I don't know. But everything they were doing had in mind the best interest of the country in their view. They were working to... uh, to do mm-hmm. their jobs. They may have overreached, I don't know, but they were what they were doing was what they believed was right to serve the country. What Donald Trump did was not to serve the country. It was great harm to the country. It was to serve himself. And I think that's the difference. And uh, the difference may be that this, uh, his actions combined may have uh, added up to uh, a coup, to use the maybe overused word. Do you believe that it does amount to a coup that he was really attempting to overthrow the legitimate government of the United States? I think that Donald Trump was trying to create enough chaos to uh, throw, for in his first efforts, to throw some of the elections uh, into the state legislatures that were controlled by Republicans, because he only needed a few states to, to swing his way. You know, Georgia, Michigan, look at all the places where he filed lawsuits. Right. I think when those efforts failed, he then tried to do the same thing in the Congress. If he could create enough chaos there and get enough people to vote against certification, then that throws the election into the House. And you might say, well, the House had more Democrats than Republicans, so what's the point? But the way the voting works mm-hmm. is each state gets one delegation. And when you count the math that way, Republicans actually had the majority. And so that was one path to his electoral victory. And so is it a coup? I don't know if it's a coup. It's a diabolically clever way to try to undermine. Uh, democracy in America. Right. Uh, and one could argue, I believe, to overthrow the legitimately elected new president of the United States. Yes. Um, from what you've seen, uh, the evidence that you've, you've, uh, you've looked at, did Donald Trump incite the insurrection on January 6th by his comments? I think he, uh, I think in one sense, in the generic sense of the word, yes, he did incite. Is it sufficient for uh, crim- criminal. There is a, 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 a crime uh, for inciting violence um, that can be charged criminally. There is a test, a legal test, because of the First Amendment tensions there. You know, he would say, I just gave a fiery political speech and people do that all the time. They urge people to fight. We have to fight for our rights. You hear that all the time. And I think the standard is a case um, where the Supreme Court said the test is whether the person intended to incite violence, and whether it was reasonable that the audience took it that way. And so I think the audience took it that way. They, <laughs> they marched down they yeah. marched down in Pennsylvania Avenue, just as he said. They went into, they fought for their rights, and they went to take their country back. So um, the question would be, what was Donald Trump's intent? And that can be very difficult to ascertain, but not impossible. And that's where investigations are important. You talk to people around him to ask what was his goal that day? What was his purpose? Uh, was he talking to people in Congress about 
uh, this sort of a breach or about, even if he didn't know exactly what was going to happen, creating enough chaos and disruption that they'd have to shut the vote down. Uh, that may have been the simple goal. I don't know that he envisioned people losing their lives and engaging in violence and spreading feces on the walls of the rotunda. Um, so uh, could that be a crime? I think we're not there yet. I think you would want to see what uh, the evidence of his intent was. Did he intend to incite violence? And certainly some of the people who were uh, terrorists who were at the Capitol did say they were there because Donald yes. Trump sent them there. One yeah, of them so, there. So right. I think that second prong is, is I, I think, pretty easily met. You know, if a fact finder like a jury would have to decide, would that be a reasonable interpretation from a listener who was in the audience? You know, you might say, uh, give a, a very uh, garden variety speech. And if someone uh, who is uh, mentally unstable takes your words and then uses it to go kill somebody, that that wouldn't be enough. But if it's reasonable, if if people in that crowd would say, yep, he's he's sending us down there. Let's go. And you're right. That that was the effect on some of those people. Uh, I think that is good evidence that um, it was reasonably understood that way. And we know that Donald Trump was not the only one to give some incendiary remarks at that January 6th rally. Uh, certainly, Rudy Giuliani and uh, Congressman Mo Brooks would be added to the list. Could they also be brought into this investigation, and should they be by the Department of Justice? Yes, I think you also need to look at wh- whether there was uh, a concerted effort. That's where you know a potential conspiracy can come into play. If they said the three of us together are going to give the most fiery speech we can think of, because our goal is to get these people mad and riled up and get down there and shut down that vote. I mean, all we need is uh, you know enough chaos down there that they'll get those they'll clear the chamber, they'll get those members of Congress out of there. I mean, my gosh, we've got the vice president of the United States down there. We've got the vice president-elect down there. Uh, let's rile them up. So if that's the case. But, you know, we had Rudy Giuliani saying, I think his words were, trial by combat. Uh, yeah. So uh, that is certainly beyond, I think, sort of garden variety, fiery political speech. And uh, But I, I think the, on their face alone, it is not enough. But I think it does merit further investigation going all the way back to election night when Giuliani said to Trump, uh, just say we won. That's our strategy. We're just going to say we won. We're going to continue to pump uh, the country with this dis- disinformation until enough people believe it. Now, I'm interested that you said that it's possible that the Department of Justice might already have this kind of, uh, such an investigation underway. Really? They could do that and we wouldn't know about it? Yes. In fact, we're not supposed to know about most investigations. <laughs> we we know right. about yeah. this investigation only because of you know what happened was so very public. And so ordinarily, the Justice Department is to neither confirm nor deny even the existence of an investigation, except when necessary to assure the public. And so because everyone saw you know this horrible thing unfold on January 6th, uh, it was necessary to come out and say, we are investigating and we will hold people accountable. And even that day, they did announce that they would take this to the highest levels and find out if anybody was involved in planning this and would hold them accountable. So I think that investigation gives them the leeway to go all the way up to the president if they believe they've got uh, sufficient evidence to do that. To date, we've seen you know kind of the low-hanging fruit, right. people who were um, entering a restricted area, for example, and have pled guilty, mm-hmm. people who have assaulted officers. There have even been some you know, Oath Keepers and some of these other groups who've been charged with conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, you know, by showing up and um, forcing Congress to shut down uh, those proceedings that day. 
Uh, and they did have some pre-planning where they had a variety of people with walkie-talkies and other kinds of things. So we've reached that level. I think the next question is, how does it go higher? You know, there have been reports of uh, photos of, of uh, um, Roger Stone at the Trump International Hotel the night before meeting with some of the people who were there uh, at the Capitol on January 6th. Was, was that just a coincidence? Does he just happen to know these guys? Or was there some sort of planning going on? Who funded them? I think we need to get to the bottom of that. Um, who was getting the word out? Who was making sure everybody was there? Uh, and, and what role, if any, did President Trump or, you know, he, 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 we have seen before that he is smart enough to pattern his behavior in the same way that we see the mob conduct their enterprises. You know, I, I don't get my hands dirty. And so I find other people uh, to do these things for me. But were there some of his associates who were paying people uh, or helping to organize these activities? Um, there was, uh, you know, a, a women's rights group that was involved in mm-hmm. planning this. Uh, they they sponsored the, election, the ra- example. They sponsored the rally, I believe. Yeah, and, yeah. and you, know, you have to be very careful because political activity is certainly protected uh, and sponsoring a rally is not criminal on its face. But the FBI is not permitted to investigate people based solely on First Amendment protected activity. If instead there are facts to suggest that they are supporting this insurrection, then that is not solely based on their First Amendment activity. It is also based on facts to suggest that they were seeking to obstruct, at the very least, obstruct a session of Congress. That alone is a serious crime. But if the ultimate goal is to change the outcome of the election, then I think it's it's far more nefarious. In fact, uh, speaking of the low-hanging fruit, I mean, you've argued and written for MSNBC that in a murder trial, for example, you don't just go after the hitman. The prosecutor has to look at who hired the hitman, correct? That's your analogy? Yeah, exactly. Right. And that's exactly the way organized crime operates. Uh, You know, you find some underlings to do the dirty work and get their hands dirty uh, and you stay, you know, a couple degrees of separation away so that you have some deniability about your involvement. As you said, in a when there's a hit, uh, it's not enough that you charge the hitman. You want to get to the bottom of who hired the hitman. And I think that's an apt analogy here. We've got all these people showing up. Did they did this just arise organically? Were they just really mad? I think at the very least, President Trump and his associates were riling them up with false information. Uh, you know, one analogy is to organized crime. Another, frankly, is to terrorist organizations. And that is the playbook of Anwar uh, mm-hmm. al-Awlaki. He would uh, preach on uh, on the Internet and people would see this. He would you know, rile them up and get them angry uh, and incite them to action. And so I don't know that President Trump went so far as to uh, incite killing or violence per se, but he certainly wanted to disrupt the peaceful transfer of power. I popped into my head as you were speaking that we actually started a war in Afghanistan to go after the man who hired those who conducted the terrorist attacks on September 11. Exactly. If the Department of Justice were to limit its investigation and its actions, criminal actions against those who invaded the Capitol on, on January 6th and did not go up the chain, did not go after uh, Donald Trump or Rudy Giuliani uh, and others, if they took no action at all, did not follow up at the criminal level there, what impact would that have, do you believe, on the country, on the on our legal system? Well, of course, they can only file charges if they find sufficient evidence to yes. prove a case. And I think it would take an awful lot. Um, 
I know that no one is above the law and all people should be treated equally. But I think for the reasons we discussed earlier with regard to President Obama's decision about his predecessors or Eric Holder's decisions about uh, predecessors to the Obama administration, I think it is a decision that the attorney general would not take lightly. I think he would want to make sure the evidence is overwhelming. Um, But if they fail to take action, I do think there is a concern about what that bodes for the future. One of the reasons we prosecute people, I think sometimes uh, we think only about public safety and removing from the community, incapacitating people who are dangerous. You know, the Boston Marathon bomber had to be removed from the streets because he was dangerous. Dylan Roof had to be removed from the streets because he was dangerous. But another reason that we prosecute people is for deterrence. You can't get away with it. If you do this bad thing, uh, there will be a price to pay. And not only does it deter the individual who gets caught, but it also deters everybody else who's watching. And so uh, if there is no deterrence in this case, you can imagine somebody who's watching this, who says, I see how this game is played. Trump was pretty clumsy about this, but I can think of a way to do this in a much smoother way. I'm going to follow this playbook, but I'm going to start my disinformation campaign earlier, or I'm going to hire some more credible people, or uh, I can think of a different way legally to abuse the legal process uh, to, to win. And I, I think that it tends to undermine the effectiveness of our elections. I also think that all the things that President Trump has done has really undermined public confidence in our elections. Uh, you know, he keeps talking about how they're rigged. He starts that, you know, he even, even in 2016, you remember, he started talking about the rigged election. If he hadn't won, I am sure we would have been hearing the same things in 2016. But to his great surprise and that of many others, uh, he actually won that election. So suddenly no word about the election being rigged, right? Uh, we don't care because he won. Uh, but when he loses, then it's all rigged, you know, undermining confidence in voting by mail, which is something we absolutely should be doing more of, especially during a pandemic. And so all of those things have been so harmful. And so um, to uh, to just let it go, I think would be a mistake. If there is a rigorous investigation and a decision is made that the evidence just is not sufficient to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, um, then then that's an understandable position. And letting it go could certainly maybe convince some future president, right, that mm-hmm. he, he can get away with the same thing. Yeah, if sure. He, if, so, he's clever, if he's clever enough. Yeah, any, any candidate for office could, could think about this. And whether it's a president or someone running for governor, or maybe it works even better if you're running for dog catcher, no matter what level, anything that undermines the integrity of our elections and even the perception of the integrity of our elections I think is very harmful to democracy and everything this country stands for. Our guest today is Barbara McQuaid. You know her, you see her on MSNBC, legal analyst and columnist, uh, also professor of law at the University of Michigan Law School. Uh, Barbara, we'll take a quick break and I'm going to come back and ask you about uh, one other investigation that is underway in the Congress and what connection there may be between that uh, investigation and the Department of Justice. Take a quick break here on the Bill Press Pod. The Bill Press Pod brought to you today by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, those good men and women of the Teamsters Union, members of America's largest and most diverse of all of our labor unions under the leadership, longtime leadership of President Jim Hoffa. They are one and a half million strong, representing every segment of the American workforce from uh, vegetable workers in California 
to construction workers in Las Vegas, brewery workers in St. Louis, bakery workers in Maine. As they say, they represent everybody from A to Z, from airline pilots to zookeepers. We salute the members of the Teamsters, thank them for their good work and for their support of the Bill Press Pond. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. We're back with Barbara McQuaid. Barbara McQuaid, the legal analyst for MSNBC and professor of law at the University of Michigan Law School. So, uh, Barbara, as we mentioned, uh, the House of Representatives has a select committee looking into the events of January 6th uh, at every level. Uh, what is their mission and how is that different from what you believe the Department of Justice should undertake? Yeah, the mission of the congressional investigation is different. Uh, the Justice Department can look into criminal matters. It also has an inspector general investigation going on into internal matters at the Justice Department to see if anybody abused their, their powers there or uh, there need to be additional rules in place. But what Congress's role is, of course, is to legislate. And so when they undergo investigations, they are looking to see whether there are gaps in the law or changes in the law that need to be made to improve the life of all Americans under their enumerated powers. And so clearly on January 6th, something went horribly wrong. And so their job is to find out what, how did this happen? How can we prevent it from ever happening again? Was it an intelligence failure? Was it a security failure? Uh, was this a funded effort by others to uh, attack us? So I think their role uh, in that way is really different. It's to figure out what happened and pass laws to prevent it from happening again. So part of figuring out what happened would be who influenced this, right? Who instigated this? Who's behind it? Some of the people I know you've talked about that uh, they should uh, uh, pose those questions to would include the Republican leader, Kevin McCarthy, part of the leadership, of Congressman Jim Jordan, both of whom spoke to Donald Trump on January 6th. That's part of the investigation. And whatever they find could be shared with the Justice Department, correct? Yes, that's right. And so um, it could be 
a sort of back doorway of letting Congress do its work for it. If you're the Justice Department, you know, you can say, well, we know that this is politically uh, very dicey to go down this road. Mm-hmm. But Congress, is, you know, is doing this in its uh, uh, legislative oversight role. If they find information, they share it with us. That gives us the ability to pursue it. So that could be one strategy as well. But as you said, uh, you know, there is uh, reporting that Kevin McCarthy and Jim Jordan were talking on the phone with President Trump that day, in fact, urging him to do something to stop the attack. And, uh, you know, words to the effect of uh, from President Trump, well, Kevin, I guess the, those people are just more upset about this than you are, uh, you, you know, when he was mm-hmm. urgently calling for help. So I think there's a real interest in what was going on there. I mean, did President Trump not, what, delay in stopping it? Did he refuse to stop it? If so, why? Um, and I think those conversations are, are very important. So it would be, I think, highly unusual to call a member of your own body to come testify. But in this instance, they're all witnesses because uh, unlike most situations where members of Congress are just the fact finders, here they were the victims of this crime and the witnesses to this crime. And so those who may have been involved and have information need to provide that information. And I would note that Kevin McCarthy is, um, because of his reluctance, I would suggest that that shows even perhaps a consciousness of guilt. You know, he's been very reluctant to let Congress look at phone records that might show that he was in contact with President Trump. Um, And so that just causes me to be even more curious about his conversations. He has even warned the tech companies, or he basically has ordered uh, the tech companies and the phone companies not to provide any information, uh, any records to the select committee. Isn't that an obstruction of justice? It, it is. And it's it's a, it's an egregious abuse of his role uh, in, in the House. He, of all people, well knows that Congress has the ability to use subpoenas to gather information on any topic on which it may legislate. That is... Uh, confirmed in case law. It is different. He is also using statutes that apply only to the executive branch to suggest that the legislative branch needs to work through those same statutes. They don't. As a matter of separation of powers, the legislature is entitled to those records. Now, I think he is trying to conflate what they're asking for and make it look more nefarious. Mm -hmm. I think there is some question as to whether Congress can use a subpoena to get content. That is the content of your text messages or the content of your emails. What they're requesting right now are simply transactional records so they can see who was calling whom. The Fourth Amendment says that you either need a warrant or uh, it has to pass the reasonableness test to get those things. That's untested and that question is unclear, but Congress has not sought any kind of content records. They are seeking only transactional records. And and that is a clearly established right of Congress to do that. And for Kevin McCarthy to threaten and, and essentially extort tech companies mm-hmm. by saying, we'll get back at you. When do you have the power to do that? I agree that it is obstruction of justice and perhaps extortion to be doing that. So we'll see if he stands down. But I think he's also trying to rile up his base a little bit to say, you know, they're uh, intruding on my rights and you're next. Should the committee call Donald Trump to testify? I don't know. That, again, would be very dicey. Um, <laughs> I think that if we got to that point, you would certainly want to do that last in any investigation. Yeah. Uh, you know, when Robert Mueller was going through the dance with him, I think that was, uh, you know, what you would want to do it last. You want to know as much information as you possibly can so you can pin him down and make it difficult for him to 
with a lot of things by by making things up that you don't know any better. But if you've had a chance to review all the documents and talk to everybody else, then maybe that's the case. We are so deferential to each other in this country in terms of separation of powers. And I think ordinarily it's a good thing. You want to respect the role of each of those entities. But if it, this is not about a policy choice that Donald Trump made or a decision about executing the laws that he made, which I do think need to have appropriate deference, but whether he may have committed a crime or engaged in conduct that put the lives of members of Congress at risk, then I think we need to dispense with the niceties and, and yes, call him before the committee. I mean, maybe, you know, you could give him one of those courtesies of interviewing him in a deposition outside the right. layer of the, of the lights, uh, truly as a matter of courtesy, and then just, you know, share with the public those portions that are, are relevant to the conversation. And a, on a related matter, you have, uh, and you, you alluded to this a little earlier in our conversation, but you've also opined on MSNBC and written about what should happen to people like Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, Lynn Wood, who ran around the country filing all these frivolous lawsuits. Uh, they lost on all of them. Um, yeah, and Bill, can can they get a, just get away with that? Um, no, and I hope not. And, you know, you use the word frivolous, which is the accurate word that gets used in these uh, statutes about sanctions for frivolous lawsuits. But I think these lawsuits are beyond frivolous. I think frivolous um, hmm. kind of um, uh, minimizes the harm. They were sinister. They were an effort to undermine public confidence in the election. In one of those lawsuits we've seen here in Michigan, filed by Sidney Powell, Lynn Wood, and seven other lawyers, a lawsuit challenging the election results in Michigan. And their basis were a number of affidavits that had been gathered for different purposes that said things that were complete non sequiturs. People observed things that did not equate to any kind of fraud. You know, someone would say, I saw a truck pull up at the convention center yeah. where there were county votes. Yeah, and therefore what? I saw but some people carrying a plastic bag of documents that might have been ballots. Okay, and therefore what? And yet they said they filed this lawsuit, uh, they challenged the outcome of the election, and as the judge in that case said when she imposed sanctions on these lawyers, the goal here was never to challenge the election. The goal here was always to undermine public confidence in the outcome. And so for that reason, she did award sanctions against the lawyers. That means that the defendants in this case, the state of Michigan and the city of Detroit, may submit bills that those lawyers will have to pay uh, mm -hmm. for their legal fees. But in addition, she referred all of those lawyers to the bar authorities in their relevant states for disciplinary proceedings. You know, lawyers, one of their arguments was that they have a First Amendment right to say whatever they want. And as the judge pointed out, when you're a lawyer, um, you are part of a privileged group. You become an officer of the court and you have an obligation to say things that are true. You can advance arguments on behalf of your client. You can argue for extensions in the law uh, on behalf of your client, but you cannot falsely represent facts in court. And that's what happened here uh, for this very nefarious purpose. So Judge Parker, uh, Linda Parker in Detroit wrote a 110-page opinion detailing mm. each of, how each of these affidavits mm -hmm. was total nonsense. Um, and so I hope that sends a warning message to lawyers around the country that uh, if you use your reputation as a lawyer and the legal process to undermine public confidence in election based on falsehoods, there is a very serious price to be paid. So in a way that we can't really hold 
all members of the public accountable for you know making stuff up in promoting disinformation. We can hold lawyers accountable, and so uh, disbarring them or disciplining disciplining them or suspending them are all options in the states where they are licensed. Barbara, you've been very generous with your time. Let me ask you just one final question before we let you go, and that is clearly our democracy suffered a big challenge after the election of November third. After particularly after the insurrection of January six. It's a little shaky today. A lot of people are mm-hmm. worried that our democracy would survive. What do you think has to happen to give us confidence again that um, that we're going to make it through this challenge? I think we need good leadership that does talk about the importance of free and fair elections, not only at the federal level, but at the state level. I think we might also need to explore a regulation of social media. I think that social media has become the primary source of news for many people, and people do not have the ability to discern fact from fiction on social media. And so in the same way we regulate print media and television and radio and other things, maybe we need to consider more regulation about what's said on on the internet. I think we also need to engage in some public education so that members of the public can discern for themselves that which is accurate and that which is on shaky ground, you know, because my my friend Sheila sent me a put a post on Facebook that says yeah. that uh, you know uh, if you use vote by mail, they throw it away. You know, is that true? And so giving people the ability to kind of learn how to verify what's accurate and what's not accurate to assess the credibility of their news sources. I think all of those things need to happen to help just reinforce you know the important parts of our democracy. In addition to a criminal investigation by the Department of Justice, right? Yes. Okay. I I, I think that would help. Barbara McQuaid, thank you so much. Thanks for your good work. Love seeing you on MSNBC. And thank you for spending time with us today on the Bill Press Pod. Thank you very much, Bill. And there we go. That's a wrap for the second episode in our three-part series, Our Democracy in Peril. Thanks to Barbara McQuaid and thanks to all of you for joining us. So, As we've learned, uh, a lot more must be done to bring those responsible for the violent assault on the Capitol on January 6th to justice. But meanwhile, across the country, you may not realize it, there's underway a nonviolent assault on our democracy in our state capitals, which might be even more dangerous than what happened on January 6th. We'll talk about that next week. Meanwhile, take care of yourselves. Don't forget our Reporters Roundtable on Friday on the Bill Press Pod. And then we'll see you next Tuesday for the third edition of Our Democracy in Peril.